You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. Time for The Naked Scientist with Dr. Chris Smith. And we take your calls on 011-883-0702 and the WhatsApp line 072-702-1702. Doctor, how are you doing? Happy Monday. Happy Monday to you too. I'm very good, thank you. How are you? I am good and I'm wondering if there's anything science has to say about those that are punctual and those that are not. <laughs> I was listening to your conversation with John and thinking, whoops, I'm, I'm in both those camps. I've been the latey and the <laughs> person upset by being late. Uh, and, and I do it frequently. And I put it down to being, being a busy person who's also one of those people who always says, I've just got time to do that. I can just do that. I'll mm. just do that. And, and I always cut it too fine. And, and I almost miss my train and then have to run a bit faster or end up making some other compromise. I really do need to learn my lesson, don't I? Well, I think you and I are in the same boat, but you know what the, the lesson is, is, is not that we need to learn to be on time, it's that we need to learn to say no. Probably. <laughs> no, that's true. Although, you know what they say, if you want to get something done, you give it to someone who's busy. And there's, there's a lesson in that, isn't there? Because people who are busy tend to be people who say yes, and they do take on a lot, and sometimes they do take on a bit too much because you're an ambitious type of person and you think, well, I can cope with pretty much anything. Yes. There's not much that phases me. And I'm not going to be cautious about that because I think I can, I can probably cope with that. And you don't want to disappoint the other person. So you just say yes. And you hear yourself going yes. And then you think, actually, maybe I didn't want to say that after all. But by then it's too late. And you think, oh, I'll do it anyway. And, and then there are knock on consequences. But people luckily do keep coming back because you're quite good when you do turn up. So <laughs> that's the way I look at it anyway. Yes. And you don't strike me as a terrible communicator. So I'm happy for that one. All right, let's go to oh, the good, lines. Good. We have Lisiba in Centurion. Go ahead. Um, how are you? And uh, thank you very much for taking my call. Yes. And um, good afternoon to the doctor. Mm. And I have a, a question relating to something which comes out of tradition, but it seems to be having some scientific explanation, and I'll say it. If you open your mouth wide and you look at the back of your mouth, you'll see there is something hanging. I don't know the name in English, but in Sisutu they call it Pilo Piloan. Mm. That thing when uh, children or even adults, uh, sometimes it, it gets swollen and then children or adults, they will just cough continuously. It's a dry cough and it is irritating and it is also uh, almost like a, making the people feel very bad. Not, not only bad, but it is painful. So traditionally, they will cut that, uh, the tip of that, uh, that thing which is hanging, and after they have cut it, then the continuous uncontrolled cough or dry cough disappears. So I want to know from the, from the scientist whether that has got any scientific explanation or it is just something which has to do with a belief. The second thing, is that uh, it's about myself. I'm a long-time sufferer of COVID, or actually, what is a long COVID sufferer? Now, I've gone through all the medicals, and uh, my lungs have recovered. I no longer have refluxes. I don't have anything. They've checked everything possible. But the cough is remaining. Now, I'm beginning to say that probably the doctors, because they don't have this uh, traditional knowledge of cutting uh, that thing which 
with me it was never cut because I never suffered from the, the, this unco- uncontrolled cough. So the question is, could it be the answer then to my suffering now? And then I can, uh, yeah, if, they, if, they, if you still have some questions, then I can explain more. Thank Brilliant you so question. much, Lucida. Mm. The, the bit that you can see in the mirror dangling down at the back and wobbling around when you say, ah, is your uvula. That's the anatomical term. And when we take something out of the body, you usually add ectomy to the end of it. So if you have your appendix out, you have an appendicectomy. And if you have your uvula removed or truncated a bit, they knock a bit off of it, then it's a uvulectomy. And it is done. In some people, it can occlude the airway and cause snoring or apnea when you go to sleep and everything relaxes. In some cases, you can get some kind of intractable damage or infection there and it can cause an issue and it, and it can be removed for that reason. So this is done medically. It's a recognised treatment to take that piece of tissue away or make it smaller. But it's not something you could just or should just leap into because there's usually a reason why a symptom happens and there's a mechanism behind that. And it's important before just making an assumption and just launching blindly into a path of treatment that one has investigated properly. Now, I know you said I've got long COVID and this has caused a cough, but we don't know for sure that the long COVID has caused the cough. It's very important to make sure that we are sure about that before we launch into something that might or might not be the right diagnosis and therefore might be the wrong treatment for that diagnosis. So bottom line here, you're quite right. You can have that part of your body surgically adjusted and have a uvulectomy and it can be used for coughing and irritation and and other things like that to to relieve those symptoms and it is done but we don't know why you might have your symptoms and therefore it might not be quite the right thing for you so the key thing is that it's properly investigated to make sure that the reason for your symptoms has been understood and we're not missing something and therefore work out what the best treatment for whatever your new symptom is. Thank you so much for that question. And we've got some questions on the WhatsApp line. Hi, Lebo and Dr. Chris. I would like to ask about vita- vitamins. Uh, I'm, I'm taking vitamin D3 uh, and vitamin C. So I would like to know that how long does the vitamins, vitamins, vitamins stay in your system? Because I take one one month and then I skip the other month and then I take, I skip the other month and then I take. So I would like to know how long does the vitamins stay in women's system? Mm. Well, the answer to this is that it depends on what sort of vitamin we're dealing with because vitamins come in two different classes, the water-soluble ones and the fat-soluble ones. And the fat-soluble ones are vitamin A, vitamin D, vitamin E, vitamin K. Those ones you get from dietary components that have oils in them and because they're fat soluble you can store them in your own fat tissue and they therefore because you have a lot of fat tissue can be used for a long period of time and will remain in the body for a long period of time. So you're less likely to run out of the fat soluble vitamins with a few exceptions and under very exceptional circumstances compared to the water soluble ones. Vitamin C is a water soluble vitamin the B vitamins are water-soluble vitamins. So you have to top yourself up with those regularly because otherwise you pee those out much more rapidly. 
So if you were saying to me, which one should I take and which one should I not take? The answer is that unless you have a defined deficiency, cynics say vitamin pills are a really good way of making very expensive urine. In other words, most of what you take in vitamin pills, that's what food is for. And most vitamin pill contents just enrich the people who sell them to you, make you poorer and don't really affect your health. There are some people who have specific health needs and they do need topping up with certain vitamins and minerals. And under those circumstances, it's absolutely essential that they do that for good health reasons. But most people who eat a balanced diet do not need vitamins. So the first thing you should do is be thinking about, well, can I substitute a food, which is almost certainly going to be a lot cheaper and probably better in terms of as a supply of those vitamins for you. If you can't or you have a defined medical need, then the one you're going to run out of fastest are the water-soluble ones. Luckily, they're also the ones that are really easy and really cheap to get from food because you go and eat some green leafy vegetables for your B vitamins and go and find some nice ripe fruit, which is nice bright red, say, the apples and oranges and so on and that will give you plenty of vitamin C. So on that note about the very expensive urine, doctor, my question is there are some people who use urine for different types of, and I'll say it in inverted commas, um, therapy, like washing or using it to wash with or drinking it. Some might use it to wash their hair. Is there any scientific evidence that using urine in that way is beneficial at all? Well, if there are trace nutrients in the urine, then if you drink it, and it's, let's put aside any other kind of chemical threat, there's no infection risk or anything, let's just say it's your own, for example, then you will absorb some of those micronutrients. But at the same time, it's salty, it's more concentrated than your body fluids, with a few exceptions, and therefore it'll probably make you drink loads more. So you'll drink more water to compensate, and then you'll make more expensive urine because you'll wash out all the other stuff. So um, I think the best thing to do is to just eat sensible, sensible diets and eat the right things. Balanced diet and don't skimp on the fresh fruit and vegetables. Five portions a day of fresh fruit and vegetables is the best way to have a good healthy diet. And all of the micronutrients which you need are in there. Your body has spent millions of years evolving to be really good at getting the trace elements it needs from what we eat naturally. When we began to evolve in very harsh conditions millions of years ago, we didn't have pharmacies and people pushing pills on us. Yes. We had to make sure our bodies were optimised to survive in really, really harsh conditions. These days, we have a cushy life in comparison with readily available foods of all different types that we can easily access at a fraction of the, the cost to our health that, that getting those sorts of foodstuffs would have come at historically and we wouldn't have had these sort of fallow periods where we couldn't access those foods. So our bodies really are very good much better really than they need to be at getting these nutrients out of the food we eat as long as we supply them with the raw materials in the first place. So that's the best way to do it and the, and the most cost-effective way to do it. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, more questions for Dr. Chris Smith. The Naked Scientist. We're still with The Naked Scientist as we wrap up. 011-883-0702 and the WhatsApp line 0727021702. Tato in Randburg, go ahead. Hey, guys. Sharp, sharp, why not? Ah, uh, sharp, man. Hey, naked scientist, man. There's this thing called a para, what, what, paraphysia, right? Mm. It happens when I'm in the bathroom mm. where my legs go dead. I don't know if you, if you heard that, when you stand up from the bathroom and then your legs are wobbly and you can't walk, right? What Do you mean from the bathroom? 
Do you mean it's specifically uh, to the bathroom? Two. Oh, number specifically two. to a number two. <laughs> I thought you were referring yeah. to like laying on your leg for a long time. Uh, no, it's sitting on your bathroom. Right? Your legs go dead. Uh, it's got to do with nerves and something. But why does the, why doesn't happen when you're driving or you're on the couch? So that's my question. Yeah. Why does it happen only in the bathroom when you're doing a number two, where your legs go dead? Tato, is it just you or are there other people who go through this? Everybody suffers from the same thing. <laughs> I've never. Doctor, help me out with this one. I've never heard of this in my life. No, me neither. I was going to say, whatever you do, don't do the experiment and do a number two in the car just to be sure that it is exclusive <laughs> to the bathroom. That could be unpleasant. But... um. <laughs> I, I was thinking along similar lines that it's because, and you don't go into how long the visit lasts, but it might be that it's an exceptionally long visit. But when we put pressure on a nerve, whether that's by sitting in a certain position, crossing your legs, laying on your arms, you know, falling asleep on a, in a certain position where you, you squash a nerve, what you do is to deprive the nerve of the flow of blood through what are called the vasa nervorum, the blood vessels of the nerves, because nerves have a really high energy demand and they have blood vessels that feed them to supply them with the oxygen and the sugars that they need to keep pumping ions, electrically charged particles, to maintain the potential difference inside the nerve. And if you squeeze the nerve, you interrupt the blood flow, which deprives it of that energy input, and you therefore cause the nerve to stop conducting impulses after a while. And that is the reason you get pins and needles, and you also get a motor deficit. You find your muscles don't seem to answer to the call properly. So it might be that the posture that you're adopting when you're sitting down in the bathroom is putting pressure on nerves either directly in your legs or because of the posture somewhere in your back if you if you just through the way your back is naturally structured or you're a bit older and there's some some build up of bone in certain places you can impinge on nerves where they come out of the spinal cord in certain positions and it might be there's enough of a squeezing effect doing this to to make this happen in the certain positions you adopt doing some things but not doing other things and that would be my best guess but i i don't know for sure let's hear from other people who find they get this if they do i am so confused but thank you Tato, for bringing that up wandile and centurion go ahead hi mm. i would like to know i have bipolar one and mm. i was diagnosed about two years ago mm-hmm. and ever since i had my first episode with bipolar I've never been able to sleep on my mm. own. Mm. So I was wondering, will I ever be able to sleep on my own? Because now I sleep with sleeping tablets. And mm. I was wondering, what is the reason and why can't I sleep on my own? And and does that apply to all of, um, oh, I can't remember the term, but is is that in a mania phase or just in general? So uh, the, the episode that I had was a mania phase, yes. but it's since past and I have been taking medication, bipolar medication, and my chemicals have balanced out, mm. so I haven't had a episode again. But ever since I had that first episode, I haven't been able to fall asleep on my own mm. at all. So mm. I take sleeping tablets, and I have been taking them since I was diagnosed with bipolar. Mm, that's such a good One. question, Wandile, and thank you for asking. And Dr. Chris, I'm just wondering, I once heard... Um, 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 somebody like a psychiatrist that was sharing that sometimes the anxiety of in your mind, the dependence of the sleeping pills is what keeps a person awake. Is it related to the bipolar or is it something else, the sleeplessness? This is a very difficult question to answer because all of the above could apply. But for people who are not familiar, 
bipolar disorder. We used to call it manic depression, but we call it bipolar disorder because it's a clearer description of what happens in, in, in situations where people get this. They will go through phases where they become, as you just heard Lebo refer to, as manic. And people under those circumstances have a lot of energy. They do not need to go to sleep. They'll say they, they, their need for sleep is, is almost gone. They, they may stay up for days at a time. And they may talk very fast. They, they, they find that their thoughts are going so quickly that they can't convey them to people. And th this combination of a ferocious uh, energy burn, not getting enough sleep and uh, be becoming kind of confused can lead to people having delusions and experiencing psychotic episodes. And it's very, very disabling for them. And then they may lurch into a period of profound depression. And this can last for short periods through to very long protracted periods. And again, it's equally disabling. Some people cycle rapidly between those two states. Other people uh, tend to adopt one state most of the time and occasionally have one or the other. And so really the treatment focuses on stabilizing mood, trying to minimize the departures from one to the other. But sometimes because of the disturbance to a person's mood, sometimes because of medication that they take in order to keep their mood stable, a knock-on effect can be a disturbance to their normal sleep pattern. And sometimes it's just about getting back into a sleep pattern, but sometimes it's because they've got into using the tablets that once you take them away for a little while, you then find sleep hard to get, but then you're so worried about getting another manic phase that that then panics you into being anxious and keeping yourself awake. Mm. So really, I, I'd say there must be somebody who's helping you with your bipolar. I would discuss this with them and see if you can come up with a managed way to reduce the sleeping medication to see if you can get yourself almost like standing on your own two feet again to get your sleep hygiene, as it's called, back. And that may give you your confidence back. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much, Wandile, for that question. Dr. Chris, we're back together next week.